Our sermon text today is Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and Matthew 18 through 23. Matthew 13, 18 through 23. This is the inspired word of the living God. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And Matthew thirteen eighteen through 23. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. and we are your field. We pray now that you would sow the seed of your glory in this field. And we pray that you would bless the seed that you sow this morning so that in the lives of those who are your children already, there would be a yield a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. And that there would be a yield that you bring forth out of the lives of those not yet your people, that you would cause them to live to you today. That this life-giving seed of the gospel would go forth into their lives. You would sow it in their hearts and you would speak life into their lives you would do this for their joy and for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, when when you look at Jesus' message and when you look at his ministry, um, there's no way you can avoid being confronted uh, by a very significant question. And this is true in our own experience, and it's true in the flow of Matthew's gospel. As we are 
as we are in Matthew's gospel, uh, particularly uh, in chapters 11 and 12, what we're seeing is that not everybody responds to Jesus' message with joy. And so there's this huge question that rises up out of our experience, that rises up uh, out of Matthew's gospel, is that why, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he's who he declares himself to be and who he shows himself to be, in other words, if we take his word seriously and we take his work seriously, then how come there aren't more Christians? I mean, how could it be that he could be the king of everything, and yet so many people reject him. Now, that's actually a big problem. And we're supposed to feel the tension of that problem within Matthew's gospel, because particularly when, before we get to chapter 13 and chapters 11 and 12, chapters 11 and 12 are basically a collection of episodes in which, for the most part, people reject Jesus. So when we get to the parables in Matthew 13, we're being given a very uh, sweet gift by the Lord. And, and that's because the parables speak to these very problems, this very problem in two particular ways. The parables that Jesus tells in this chapter, and especially the parable of the sower, which we're going to be looking at this week and next week and the week after. In this parable in particular... What we see Jesus showing us is, number one, he sees the same problem that we do. And number two, he explains the problem to us. So we know we haven't been left to ourselves and we haven't been left by ourselves in this struggle. And the answer that Jesus gives to us has multiple layers. What what we're going to see in Matthew 13, we're going to see it in this parable, parable of the sowers, that there are... Uh, that there are a variety of factors that explain why it is that more people don't embrace Christ and his message. And Jesus' explanation in Matthew 13, it's not going to remove all the mystery. But he is going to give us a sufficient amount of clarity to sustain not only his disciples' endurance, but also our own endurance and faithfulness in ministry to him. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to look at Uh, the three categories of unfruitful seed in the parable of the sower. You notice, or unfruitful soil, excuse me. There are four types of soil that Jesus describes in the parable. Three of them never bear any fruit, and only one of them does yield fruit. So this morning, we're going to focus on the three that don't, and the next week, we're we're just going to spend all our time thinking about uh, the, the one soil that does bear fruit. So that's our structure, the first soil, the second soil, the third soil. Not very complicated this morning. Let's think about the first soil first. In every one of, uh, in every, there are four scenes, right? And every scene that Jesus gives us, uh, there's a story, there's a picture, and then in the explanation that he gives to his disciples, what we discover is that story is about a type of person. So we always want to look, when we're looking at any one of these soils, we want to look at what's the story that he's telling us, and then what is the person he's describing, okay? So in the first soil, 
what's, what's the story about? The story is about those who reject the gospel immediately, who reject the word of the kingdom. Look at the picture that Jesus paints. It's a picture of seed that's sown, but it's unfruitful because it never gets beneath the surface. Now look at verse 4. Right? And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. So you see the picture. The sower has sown seed, and some of the seed fell on the path. It stays on the surface of the ground. It doesn't get beneath the surface. And the explanation that Jesus gives is in verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So you see, in that picture, what's happening is the word of the kingdom, which is Jesus' message, lands on the surface of somebody's life, as it were, never gets beneath the surface, never gets all the way in, isn't embedded in the soil. And there's three things that Jesus tells us about that person. It's very important to see. The person that Jesus is describing, number one, is somebody who has heard and been confronted by the gospel. Notice verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, see, he's heard the word of the kingdom. He's heard the gospel. And the second thing that he does is he chooses to reject it. He hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. Now, I know when you hear that, you think, well, wait a second, Mike, it says he doesn't understand it. Why do you say he's choosing to reject it? Well, here's why. You and I both know that there are two very different types of not understanding something, right? There's the not understanding of inability. I can't understand that, right? And that's not morally blameworthy. It was not morally blameworthy that I got to where I got in calculus and couldn't get any further, right? I could not understand it. But there's a second very, very different type of not understanding, which is the one that Jesus is talking about here. And it's not the not understanding of inability. It's the not understanding of unwillingness. It's the, I don't want to understand it. It's not, I can't understand it. It's, I won't understand it. I choose not to understand it. And that is morally blameworthy. And that is exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about somebody who's been exposed to the gospel. They've been confronted by the the claims and the good news of God's kingdom in Christ And they have rejected that good news. That message has been consciously rejected. They have not bothered to investigate. They have not said, hey, I need to understand that more. They've said, I don't need to understand it. They don't give it the time of day. This is exactly the situation, by the way, with my family. Uh, My uh, parents will not, and my sister will not even bother. That's what this is talking about. And that is a rejection. And the third thing that Jesus tells us about this person is that there's more going on 
than this person realizes in their rejection of the gospel, right? It's not just that the person has heard the gospel. It's not just that they've rejected the gospel. But notice how Jesus emphasizes in verse 19 that after they refuse the gospel, the evil one comes and takes away even what was sown. You see, Jesus is showing us that there are supernatural realities that are not for us, that are operating upon us in ways that we are often very blind to. So, how do we think about this first type of soil pastorally? Well, the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is saying something very amazing. What he's saying, friends, is that his word, his gospel, always reaches the heart. Let me show you what I mean by that. Why I say that. Look at verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away. Now notice this, this phrase that Jesus emphasizes. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So you see, in the picture that Jesus gives us in verse 4, you might think, when you look at that picture, you think, what, what a sloppy sower. You know, he's just throwing his seed in the field, and some of it lands on the, uh, on the surface of the path. He's kind of a negligent sower, right? And the, and the word never, never really gets anywhere deep in the person's life. But then when Jesus gives us the explanation in verse 19, he says something that kind of shocks us which is he never fails to get the word sown in the heart of somebody, even someone who rejects the gospel. Oh, that's big. Because you know what that's saying? What that's saying is that in 100% of the time, in 100% of the people who are exposed to the gospel, Jesus, who is the sovereign sower, makes his word land in the heart so that the rejection of the gospel is ultimately the response of the heart. Now, friends, you may not think that's the case, but this is the sovereign sower's perspective. This is Jesus' perspective. You may think when you're sharing the gospel with somebody that that gospel isn't penetrating in their life, that would be a mistake according to Jesus here. Because if you've proclaimed the word of the kingdom, if Jesus has uh, confronted them with his word and the news of the gospel, you know because the sovereign sower says that that word has been sown in their heart and that therefore their rejection of the gospel is the rejection of, from the heart. It's not a superficial rejection. The word not only enters their ears, but also enters their heart, and therefore it is rejected before it is snatched away from them. So it would be wrong to read that particular uh, part of the parable as saying, well, the reason they weren't able to understand it is because the evil one came and snatched away. That is not what Jesus is saying. It is snatched away after it has been rejected. It isn't held by the heart And so the opportunity, at least that particular one, is lost. Now, friends, what Jesus is saying here is no different from what the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. 
right? I mean, there the writer of the Hebrews says, for the word of God, you know these verses, but I want you to think about what the writer is saying to us about the power of God's word. What, by the way, is going on right now in this room? It has nothing to do with my ability. It has nothing to do with my clarity. It has everything to do with the sovereign sower. If I stood in this pulpit and believed that your salvation or the proclamation of Christ was in any way dependent upon my power, I would quit immediately. But you see, what I know here is what Jesus tells me. And what he tells me is exactly the same thing that the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 4. He says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You know these verses, right? And what does that, that sharp sword do? It pierces as far as the division of soul and of spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge or discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, God's not asking anyone's permission God doesn't need anyone's permission in order to sow his word in their hearts. It's an awesome thing to think about. Because what's happening is not just the word, right? But there's a person who is moving towards you in this room. And that person is the sovereign Christ. He is moving toward us with his word. You see, because a sword cannot pierce unless a person picks it up and wields it. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying that when the word of God is proclaimed, when it is read, what's happening is that God himself personally, the sovereign one, is picking it up like a sword and not asking anyone's permission and going all the way to the heart. And what's happening when it does is the thoughts and intentions of that heart are being revealed. God already knows them. They're being revealed to the person. So that's the first thing I want you to see is that, is that the word, the heart is always reached by the word even in this first episode. The second thing is to, to notice that Jesus is reminding us that there's a reality of spiritual, supernatural evil and opposition. Now, we live in a very materialistic culture. We live in a very naturalistic culture. We live in a very mechanistic culture that, that assumes that the only reality that exists, I mean, this is the dominant assumption in our culture, that the only reality exi- that exists is the one you can see with your naked eyes, stuff you can measure. But the Bible has a totally different worldview, right? There's a supernatural realm, a supernatural realm that, that overlaps with the natural realm, that impinges upon the natural realm. And friends, Jesus is saying, there's a lot of mystery here, no question about that, and he doesn't explain it in full. And we're going to see it more when we get to the parable of the weeds later on in the chapter. But make no mistake about it, what Jesus is saying here in this first soil episode is that reality is not, not only much more complex than it appears to be on the surface, but it's also much more dangerous. I wonder if when you sit in this room and you think, hey, this is decorated pretty nice, does it feel, more, does it feel kind of like a really big living room to you? The way, you know, at one level, that's okay to think that. It's wonderful. But at another level, we need to not mistake what's really going on in this room. Is this is a cosmic battlefield. Are you aware of that when you come to worship? Do you pray as you prepare for worship as if, are you aware of the efforts 
to oppose the advance of the gospel in people's lives. And Jesus says that you ought to be. That's the first soil. Let's now move to the second soil. Now, this is a very different story, right? It has a very different beginning. In the first, in the first uh, episode, the first soil, nothing really ever got started, right? But in this one, something does get started. And this, this story is about those who initially and joyfully receive the gospel but ultimately bring no fruit forth because they fall away. Look at how Jesus describes the second category. Other, verse 5, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. So notice they're in the soil now, which is different from the first episode, right? They did not have, since they, they did not have much soil, but they've got some. And immediately they sprang up. Um, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Now, how does Jesus explain uh, those verses? Who, what kind of person is he describing? Uh, move over to verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word. Now, notice, in the first two categories, and actually we're going to see this with all three uh, categories of unfruitful seed, the common denominator in each of them is that they hear the word. They hear and understand at some level the word. And in this particular case, uh, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So now, what's, what, what's going on in that story is that there's a big difference between what's visible and invisible, right? I mean, to the naked eye, the external observer, you see the seed go into that soil, and you don't know how deep the soil is. You don't know how rocky the soil is. So just from the outside, all of a sudden, you see the, you see the seed sown, and then it grows up. In fact, notice the way Jesus describes it. It's very energetic. It springs up, right? This is not a, oh kind of reluctance. It's very important to see this. It springs up immediately. So you think, if you were ever going to look at seed and say, that, that is what's supposed to happen, this would be the one, wouldn't it? But something happens that prevents the seed from bringing fruit forth out of that soil, and that is that there's this external pressure, and in the picture, it's the sun. It's the heat of the sun. Are you thinking Psalm 1 right now? You should be. It's the heat of the sun. And though that plant has, has sprung up very quickly, what happens is because there's no depth where you can't see, it withers. Now, the person that Jesus is describing, this is a sad story. I mean, I think this is such a sad story. Because it has such a great beginning. Here's someone who initially, and that you've got to feel the weight of the joy, friends. It's initial joy. This is somebody who receives the word of the kingdom that they hear, 
and they do it joyfully, but the end is exactly the same as the first category. There is no fruit. This is a sad story, and it's a familiar story, right? I have seen this in my 31 years as a Christian. I've seen it in my 12 years as a pastor. I've seen it more times than I can count, and so can you. Joy by itself is ambiguous. Because this is a story about perseverance, really the absence of perseverance. Uh, This is a story that reminds us that saving faith is a story it's a movie. It's a film. It, it has multiple scenes. It, it's not just a snapshot. Summer camp, when you walked forward or when you signed the card or when you were baptized or when you were interviewed by the elders. Friends, saving faith is not a snapshot. Saving faith is a story that is lived out. It's something that grows, just like the, the uh, reflection quote from, from Tim Keller this morning. It grows. It endures. It perseveres. So this is a sad story. It's a familiar story. It's a story about perseverance. And most fundamentally, it's a very revealing story. Do you notice how the the trials, the afflictions, the persecutions, the tribulations, that's what the scorching heat of the sun stands for. Do you notice how in Jesus' explanation, those things don't change the heart. They reveal the heart. Right? The, the soil is shallow. The sun scorching the ground doesn't make deep soil into shallow soil, what the sun does, what the tribulations and persecution do, is reveal the actual depth of the soil. And friends, this is very important when we think about trials and when you think about what it means to follow Christ, right? Because what the trials are doing in this part of Jesus' parable is they are making visible what until the, the trials came had been invisible. What they're revealing is that there, it is something, how, how do we explain the growth? How do we explain the springing up? How do we explain the initial joy? Well, what the trials reveal is that the, the real key beneath the surface for that particular person was, was not the king, and it was not his kingdom. Because those can't be lost through trials. Do you know that? No, the real treasure, the energy that made this person spring up with joy wasn't the king and wasn't his kingdom because those can't be lost through trials. No, it was something else that could be. Now, that's important because all of us go through trials. And when you get to the New Testament, here's what you find. Saving faith, and you could go anywhere in the New Testament. Saving faith, here's the story of saving faith in the New Testament. It always, and there are no exceptions, saving faith always meets with trials and afflictions. Always. Step number one. It's tested. God tests it. Not because... He doesn't know whether it's genuine or not, but so that the person knows. Saving faith always meets with trials. No exceptions. 
Saving faith in response to those trials endures and perseveres. Always, no exceptions. That doesn't mean like a, you know, a, 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 a non-limping, you know, Olympic athlete, but it, you persevere. Third, those trials always reveal the true character of the saving faith because there's no other way to explain the endurance unless there was saving faith there to begin with. And finally, fourth, genuine saving faith goes through those trials, is proven, is revealed, and it is strengthened as a result of those trials. Friends, that is biblical Christianity. And so now let's move into our lives. The reality is that 100% of the people in this room who are believers are going to experience trials and already are experiencing trials. And so the question, I, I have two questions for you. What is, what is your expectation about trials and their role in the Christian life, number one, and what is your response to those trials? Number one, what's your expectation about the Christian life, friends? Is it that trials are more abnormal than normal? That sufferings are more extraordinary than ordinary? That, that trials are more the exception rather than the rule? If that is your expectation, friends, you are out of sync with what God has told us so plainly. You know, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4.12, he writes to the church that he's addressing, he says, hey, do not be surprised It's an interesting choice of words. Do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Why does he have to say that? Well, because he knows. He's <laughs> Listen, if anyone, if anyone knows what it's like to blow it under affliction, the Apostle Peter does, right? And he's just reminding us very, very wisely and pastorally. Listen, he knows that Christians, despite what we hear in God's word, he knows that we do get surprised by our trials and we do feel like they're uh, extraordinary rather than ordinary because we reason like this. If God loves us, how could he possibly allow this to come into our lives? And friends, we say that about the God who was willing to send his son to the cross and to enter suffering, not to look at it as an observer from the outside, but to enter the deepest suffering, the hardest suffering, the only unjust suffering in the history of the universe so that he could rescue us. There's something very backwards about our logic. So our expectations about trials need to come in line with what God says. Friends, how are we responding to those trials? Well, I know, I know my temptations. I, if I think, and I need to say this as plainly as I can, if I think, and I'll just, uh, I'll just put myself in the center of it because this is not something I've observed Uh, in other people as much as I've observed it in myself, if I think that my trials and my suffering have begun to, to legitimately put into play the question of whether God is good or whether he can be trusted or whether he's loving or whether he's in control, friends, if those questions are dominating my attention, I am utterly wrong. It doesn't matter how strongly those questions push themselves upon me. It doesn't matter how much they dominate my thoughts. Friends, if that's what I'm beginning to conclude because of my trials, I am totally and utterly wrong in my assessment of the situation. Let's be very clear about what the question 
is and what it isn't when a Christian is called by God to walk through trials. Here's what the question, let's deal first with what the question isn't. The question isn't whether God is sovereign over the trials. As my father, he is. The question isn't whether he is working every aspect of those trials, every aspect of that suffering, whether he's working facets that I cannot even imagine and other factors that have never entered my mind to consider. The question is not whether he is working all those manifold things together for my good. He is. That's just Romans 8.28. That's Psalm 23.6. Surely the goodness and mercy of the Lord shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the Old Testament, Romans 8.28. No, that's not the question. The question is not whether these momentary light afflictions are preparing for me an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17, because they are. The question is not whether the sufferings of this present time are worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us, because they're not. That's Romans 8.18. No, friends, the only question that is presented in my trials is whether I'm going to be humble enough to submit myself to God's explanation of his goodness through them and his trustworthiness through them. This is not a theological difficulty. This is a pride difficulty in my own heart because every single one of these questions for the Christian arises at the foot of the cross. And what we see in the cross, my friends, is the willingness of God to enter our suffering really the, the suffering ultimately that we're all deserving and destined for, that our trials now, our worst trials now, are but the, the merest, faintest, smallest, most minuscule approximation of. And he has entered that suffering ahead of us, entered, us, entered it for us, entered it as our substitute in Jesus Christ, and borne it to the full and exhausted that suffering. So having done that, having borne the penalty for all of our sins, all the sins of his people, having willingly gone there on his own, he is not someone whose goodness I have a legitimate right to question. I really just need to put my hand over my mouth. See, it's not me who's in a position to call God to repent because of my trials. But so often, that's the case my heart wants to make. No, it's God who calls me to repent. Let's think about the third soil. Yet another very complicated portrait. It's a surprising portrait You know, if in the last one, in the second category of soil, we're talking about shallow soil, uh, a soil, a a life that doesn't bring fruit of the gospel forth because uh, other things um, 
other things take precedence. Uh, Trials and afflictions externally come upon the person and make them fall away, essentially revealing that their their, uh, initial reception of the gospel was not a reception of the gospel. It was using Jesus to get to something else. This is a very different picture, this third soil, because this is about deep soil. Uh, Look at verse 22. Excuse me, before that, look at verse 7. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. See, there's growth there. It's just the wrong kind. You see that? And then go over to verse 22. Who is this? Well, Jesus is describing this this person. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, again, hearing the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, see, this is a scary story because what we've got, we don't have the problem of stolen seed. We've got seed that goes into the, into the dirt, right, into the soil. Uh, we, have, we don't have the problem of shallow soil. We've got soil that is able to sustain uh, a lot of growth. In fact, such growth that the thorns are able to outgrow, right, the seed, the, the good seed. And what we've got is we've got, we, we don't have infertile soil. We have very fertile soil here. It's good to grow thorns. It just, it produces a bumper crop of thorns. This is about bad growth, right? A lot of it aggressively outgrowing the good growth. And Jesus says twice, he says, it chokes the good growth. This is a very different kind of person, isn't it? to somebody who hears the gospel, but there's something in their lives which in the picture Jesus identifies as thorns, plural, right? And thorns, biblically, right? Always associate that with the fall. And that thing is not a dead thing. Those thorns are not a dead thing in their life. They're active. And they seize the best ground. And they get the primacy of place And it's their growth, ultimately, that is the story of this person's heart. And Jesus doesn't leave us to speculate about what the thorns are. He says in verse 22, number one, that they're the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, number two. The cares of the world. What are the cares of the world? Well, literally, what this means is the the worries of the age. That's what it says literally, the worries of the age. I think that's a very interesting thing. That's a very helpful uh, kind of summary, the worries of the age. In other words, what Jesus is saying, he's describing somebody whose life is dominated by the fears, the preoccupations, the desires, the obsessions, the treasures of the present age. And when he says Age, he's not talking about the first century. He's not talking about the 21st century. He's talking about the whole reality of the world that has thrown off God. When men act like the world belongs to them, when men believe that they belong to themselves, what is it that they place as treasures before them, and therefore what do they worry about? Wow. 
And friends, make sure you know this, that the things you worry about are the things you worship. Think about what you worry about. It's like smoke, that if you follow it back, you'll find a fire. And that fire is something that you are worshiping. Something that you believe that you must have. Otherwise, you won't be okay. Every time you and I are tempted, this is very important to understand this about worry. Every time you and I are tempted to worry, which is about every 3.6 nanoseconds, we are being called to worship. The temptation to worry is a call to worship, but in two very different directions. The temptation is calling you to worship something that is not God, to look to something besides your heavenly Father, besides the Savior who spent his blood for you, to look to some other solution for significance, for rescue, for safety, security, for identity. It's calling you to enter into covenant with an idol that will never be able to give you what it promises. The other side of that fork in the temptation to worry is a call to worship your Father who has promised you, guaranteed by the cross of His Son, that if He didn't spare His own Son, but delivered Him up to rescue you from your sins when you were His enemy, my Christian brother and sister, then how will he not, that same father, now that he's reconciled to you through Christ, how will he not also, with that Christ, give you all things? It's a call to worship. What about the deceitfulness of riches? Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say money. He doesn't say riches. He doesn't say that this person is being choked out by being wealthy. What he says is that this person's uh, fruitfulness in the gospel is being choked out by the deceitfulness of riches. And that is very important to see that. It's not riches per se. It is the lies that we believe about money. Right? That money means you're secure. That money gives you an identity. That money gives you true freedom. That money shows that you're significant. Friends, those are all counterfeit blessings that God means to give us in infinite proportions in the gospel. You see, there's a false gospel of money. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about the people who say, you know, in their hearts they sing, for I'm not ashamed of money. For it is the power of significance to everyone who has it. I'm not ashamed of money. For it is the power of identity and significance and influence and power and security to everyone who has it. it. What Jesus is talking about is the power of the false gospel of money. And you don't have to have money in order to fall prey to that false gospel. Right? You can believe it just as passionately as somebody who doesn't have money. 
Oh, if I just, you know, if I had, you know, 10,000 more dollars, I could, then I'd be okay. If I could retire at 55, if I could retire. Friends, there are, there are lusts. What Jesus is talking about here, the pastoral dots here, are that what Jesus is forcing us to face is that the, there are lusts and heart idolatries in all of our lives that are very dangerous. And they have, they're, they're really present in our lives. They're very powerful. And they're very dangerous. Okay? And Jesus is reminding us that if we allow those things to hold the primacy of place, if we permit those thorns to have the best real estate of our hearts, if we give them first place or at least make sure that they're prominent, if we go back again and again and we water them, and we give short shrift to the word of the kingdom, what's going to happen is that they are going to grow up and there's no peaceful coexistence that's possible, friends. Jesus says they're going to choke out the good growth. Now, you know what a lust is in the Bible? We think that lust is just talking about sex. That's because we don't know the English language. Lust is, and it's true in Greek as it is in English, lust is any desire for a legitimate thing that metastasizes, and that's really the right way to say it. It grows too big in your life, and it becomes an ultimate thing for you. It becomes a defining thing. It becomes a thing by which you measure your significance or your importance or your safety or your peace, where you say, I must have that or life isn't worth living. A desire that becomes an over-desire. And Jesus is saying that these things, we need, to, we need to know our own hearts, friends. We need to recognize that there is great danger in allowing these things to persist. Friends, that could be a secret sexual sin that you indulge in again and again just with your eyes. It could be a desire for revenge that you harbor in your heart towards somebody. It could be an unforgiving spirit. It could be a hardness of heart toward another believer or a family member where you're just totally convinced that person is beyond hope and doesn't deserve your mercy. You let something like that harbor in your heart. You let it live there, friends. It's not neutral. It has its hands around your throat. John Owen said, I think that's why Jesus, I think that's why Jesus said twice, it chokes the good growth. John Owen said this, right? So many things John Owen said are helpful. Some of them we can actually understand. And one of the things Owen said is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's what Jesus is saying. Bring it out in the open. Confess it. Flee from it. Give the best ground of your hearts, friends, to the gospel. Why wouldn't you? 
Why wouldn't you give the best real estate of your heart, the strategic position of your heart, the commanding center of your personhood to the good news of Jesus' life for you and his death for you and his resurrection for you? Why would you not give that primacy of place in your heart? Sin is insane. That's why. So I have two uh, concluding pastoral observations. Because I know this has been a heavy message. And, uh, and you're wondering, why did you keep the fruitful one out of this sermon? That fourth category. Because, because there's so much to say about it, that's why. But there is such profound, as I thought about these three uh, categories, and as I thought about uh, the, this parable itself, I was just so struck this week. Uh, I mean, how many times have I read this parable? Oh, my goodness. And yet still, still, there were, there were new gifts. There was new fruit this week that Jesus was just opening up for me in this parable. And I was so encouraged. And I want to share these two encouragements with you. They, they interlock. They're related. And the first one is this. Friends, that, that, that these categories, these three categories, this is utterly critical to see this, that these three categories are open. And here's what I mean by that. There's hope. If you recognize yourself in any of these categories this morning, if you feel uh, very uncomfortable uh, by, uh, when you read any one of these particular episodes, friends, uh, don't, you, the wrong conclusion would be that you're trapped in that category. Because, first, Jesus gave the explanation of the parable to his disciples. Number one. Number two, The Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write this gospel and to give the explanation of the parable, not just to the disciples, but to all of Jesus' disciples, to every generation of the church. That means the fact that we have been ushered into the Lord's explanation of this parable means that Jesus intends for us to benefit from it. Friends, these three stories of unfruitful soil that Jesus tells, those stories are finished. They're over, they're closed, but your story is not. Your story is still open. Your story can change. And the reason God is telling you and showing you these examples is to move you with a severe mercy in some cases, to move you, to liberate you for that fourth category of soil that receives the gospel, that receives the word of Christ, that embraces it, and that lets the fruitfulness of Jesus Christ hold commanding position in your life. That's what God wants to do. So take the wisdom of Jesus' insights and let their power carry you to Christ. And that leads me to my second observation, which is not only are these categories open, but I'm going to say the same thing I say sometimes in the same words, but usually in different words. Same thing I say every week, which is that Jesus Christ is fruitful. He is exceedingly fruitful. That's what it means for him to be who he is, is that he brings life. He swallows up death, right? He swallows it up. 
He swallows up the curse. He swallows up judgment. He swallows up condemnation. He absorbs it in his own body on the tree and the cross. He takes what his people have earned through their sin and he absorbs it all. He exhausts it so that he can give life to us. Now I want you to think about how different the gospel is from every other way of approaching God, every other religion. You know, in, in every other religion or every other way of dealing with God besides the gospel, what happens is that we turn the story upside down. And when we turn the story upside down, this is how we deal with God. We put ourselves in the position of the sower and we make God our field. And here's what I mean. We think that we can use God, that we can give him, we can sow these seeds of our obedience or our church going or our giving or our, you know, keep our nuclear family together or, you know, never raising our voice and never cussing and not drinking. Those kinds of things. Our Bible reading, our praying. We think that we can, but, you know, keeping the Ten Commandments as if anyone besides Jesus ever did that, Right? Like we can sow those seeds and God has to give us a harvest back of his approval, his favor, a suffering-free life, a trial-free life. Friends, that's, that's not the way the universe actually is. But that is how we often treat God. If, if you're treating God like somebody who has to respond, where, you know, you're like you're waiting, okay, is he going to come through for me now? Because I sowed those seeds. Friends, you have, you have the universe upside down because the real story of the universe is this. God is the sower. It's the story of this parable. Is that, is that Jesus Christ is the sower who has moved toward the world, the sovereign God who has moved toward the world in our lives, and we are God's field. He has every right to expect a harvest from us. We're his creatures. Right? But the strange thing... Uh, The shocking thing about the gospel is that the sovereign sower, the gospel tells us that this sovereign sower is also the sovereign servant of the world. And he serves the world by sowing himself into it. He's the seed of the new creation. And In the Gospel of John, in John 12, Jesus says something that's absolutely shocking. The night before he's going to be crucified, he says, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you think, oh, he's going to show his power. And the very next verse, he says this. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, Jesus is describing his own ministry. And he's saying that the power of his fruitfulness is found in his willingness to die, to sow himself into the earth that has rebelled against him so that he might bring forth the harvest 
of the new creation. He has to sow himself into the world. He has to bear the curse that we've earned. He has to bear the judgment that we've deserved. He has to have all the thorns of the world pressed down upon his brow on that cross. But by his willingness to do that, friends, to sow himself, the sovereign one, to sow himself into the world, friends, there's a rich harvest. It's in the power of his willingness to give his life as our sin-bearing substitute that we will find the fruitfulness of Jesus Christ, which means that it is at the cross, friends, that you will experience the fruitfulness of Jesus. If you let that story loose in your life, if you come back again and again to that story, if you keep fighting for that story to hold prime position in your heart and in your mind, it is a growing wonder. It's not a static thing. The gospel, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, grows and bears fruit in a person's life. And friends, that's what's going to happen in your life. That story will take you over, it will be good growth that will squeeze out. There will be, it, it, it grows with such abundance as we come back to it again and again that it will squeeze out the thorns. It will choke the thorns. And there will be a joy that is deep because Jesus deepens your heart, friends. Why? Why would you ever give the best ground in your heart to anything or anyone else? It, there's only one explanation. It's madness. Right? It's just madness. Don't, don't let madness have this last word and the final say. Let gladness, the gladness that the fruitfulness of Jesus Christ means to bring forth in your life. Let that gladness that is not shallow, that is as deep as eternity, let that have the commanding position. Let's pray. Lord, we, we just acknowledge that we don't appreciate the treasure you've planted in our lives. And so we thank you for even what we don't understand. We know we just see the smallest fringes and we ask that you would take our hearts as your field and grow them, grow them with the fruit of your great work for us. We pray in your name. Amen.